time when we catch up with all kinds of uh, books that maybe we don't have time for when we're in, in, in the heat of our work assignments, although God knows no, none of us are free of our work assignments during the summer anymore. That's, that's a time in the past. But um, Martha Donegan has uh, interestingly taken a personal story and developed the uh, more broad implications of it. And I think that's what's interesting to me about it. And um, I want her to uh, tell you two stories. One, um, the story that is in her book, but two, the story of how she got it published. Because I think a lot of us think about um, writing something and getting it published. It's not easy. And many of us, you know, wind up uh, doing it on an independent basis. And that's a challenge, but it's worth it. So Martha, first of all, give us the title and the subject of your book. And let's talk about that. And then let's move into the implications of it. Okie doke. Um, the title of the book is 3003 Days of Mike and Me and the Wars Between Us. Um, that's it. And uh, it's a, it's a long title, but uh, it's about the 3,003 days I spent with my, my first husband, Mike, uh, who was a Vietnam vet, whom I met at the wall um, on the dedication day. And he was from my hometown, lo and behold. And we had done theater together. So it was kind of uh, an amazing feat that we met in a hot dog line together. It, it, it's, I, you hear a lot of stories like this where people who knew each other bump into each other again in life and then it's a whole new saga. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had gone to New York City. I worked in New York City. I worked for Vogue. And then I started my own design company there, an advertising agency. And um, he had uh, gone off to Zaire to uh, work as a Bush medic. and. Um, he was a medic in Vietnam. And uh, so our lives were very different, very different. So how did you close the gap? Uh, well, um, <laughs> in, in, in uh, recognizing him, I went over to him and I said, are you from Marlboro, Massachusetts? Are you Mike Creamer? And he said, yeah, why? <laughs> and already I was a little frightened. Um, but, uh, you know, I went, I went to, to the dedication ceremony to meet Vietnam vets. I was trying to write a book about, about why and what and how the war shaped us as a generation. I'm, I'm from, uh, I was born in 1950, so um, if you can put it into context. Um, and I just wanted to know what happened to the men and, and not just only the men, the women um, who were so drastically affected by the war. 
So um, he, he softened up and uh, we started talking and um, eventually a, a soldier came up to us, said, I, I, hey, I know you, you saved my life. And Mike said, well, I, I'm sorry, I worked on a lot of guys over there. And he said, well, I'd remember you, I, I, I know you. And he, uh, they, they agreed on the time, the place, the Suica Valley where they had both fought. And he had gotten sent home uh, as a, an injury. And uh, he said, you saved my life. And the two of them were hugging each other and crying when this soldier recognized that someone else was there said, is this your wife? And Mike said, no, this is my friend. And the guy said, do you know who you're with? And I said, yes, no. And um, he said, this man is the closest thing to God I know. And that, that was it. You know, we were bonded at that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you had the uh, endorsement of, of, oh. <laughs> of someone who had had a very life-changing experience with him. Um, so uh, I, I, I can't resist. You just have to tell me the next step, the very next step. Well, so I called him up and I invited, he was living in Massachusetts. I was living in, in New York. I didn't have a boyfriend. I had actually given up dating for a year. And I decided to invite him for Thanksgiving. You know, the parade, the Macy's parade was nearby. We could walk there. And um, he didn't accept right away. Uh, he was very taciturn. Uh, it frightened me a little bit. Um, and uh, he called back and said, yes. He said, I'm sorry, you know, I just, uh, regardless, he came, he told me, um, he told me that night, uh, he said, I have to be honest with you, I, I, it was the last thing I was going to do, I was to go visit my buddies on the wall, and I was going to, I was going to kill myself when I got home, and um, he, he said, I will leave if you want me to, but I needed to be honest with you. Wow. Uh, and I said, uh, I, I eventually, I mean, I can't remember exactly, but I, 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 I acquiesced. I, I wanted to find out about Vietnam. I wanted to find out about him. I knew him really well. We had done theater together and, um, we went on, we talked, we went out to buy the turkey, which is part of the reason I asked him down earlier than he was gonna come. And um, we, uh, we, we bonded. And uh, that night I gave up my, my year long <laughs> resistance to having any, um, any relationships. I, I immediately fell in love with him, I think. Oh my gosh. Wow. What a story. And um, all right. Well, take me forward. I'll take you forward. Oh, let's see. Uh, I think the next most striking incident is when he had a PTSD episode. Now, PTSD back then, Gene. Wasn't recognized. Wasn't recognized. It was not in the vernacular. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't tossed about. We didn't understand it. We probably don't really understand it now, 
a lot of things are attributed to PTSD and, and that's real. Um, but um, I, th I think it was the Billy Joel record that we had both bought to surprise each other because we heard it that day. The rotors, the rotors of Goodnight Saigon were exactly the US rotors. There, were, there was Vietnamese rotors and there were uh, American rotors and they were different. They sounded different. And, uh, you know, Mike, Mike is most Vietnam vets drank a lot. Um, just beer, but um, they were kind of soothing their woes. I don't know if you know it, but um, when you got back from being out on the field, your, your unit handed you two beers. Every Vietnam vet got two beers a day. Um, I'm sure some people refused, but um, I think that that was, that started then. Um, and he told me this story and he told me the story of his father deserting the household when uh -huh. he got home. Uh -huh. so the night that he got home from Vietnam, his dad was gone already. Um, but they didn't know where he was. It was just a day. And um, so it wasn't about Mike coming home and, and son, you're fine, son. His dad fought in the Pacific on frog, frog boat missions, frogman missions. And Mike too was in the reconnaissance. He, he went out in six man teams, besides being a medic, these six man LERP teams, long range reconnaissance patrol teams needed a medic with them. So he would go out. In fact, he would go out twice as many times because he, he was neat and he liked it. He was, uh, he liked it. He, I'm getting a little static on your mic, uh, Martha. Okay. It in some way? If, if, yeah. Okay. You're, you're okay, but every once in a while, it seems like your hand is brushing the mic or something. Okay. No, that was probably me. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so he's, he's getting hit three ways from Sunday from his, his, his battlefront experience, um, his uh, desertion by his father, and then the onset of, of something that we have come to recognize but didn't at the time, PTSD. So that, that's a lot for any person to handle. And then for you, it had to be very difficult as well. Because here you found somebody you really cared for and you loved, um, and then you discover the um, challenges that he's, he's dealing with, and they become your challenges as well. That's very true, Jean. You know, it, it, what, there was a time where we were, were both kind of facing one another, not facing one another, just writing letters. We wrote a lot of letters to one another. Um, and it, it wasn't sealed by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we went to the 173rd Airborne Reunion, and I was really impressed with the guys there. That's the unit that Michael was with, and uh, a very elite unit. And, um, and I felt 
a compassion for him through them that was that was very real. He started writing these essays that were going to become part of their their unit uh, letters, collected collected uh, essays. Um, the unit was disbanded on on in Vietnam, and uh, so the, they were going to do this, you know, closure on Vietnam. And he he wrote these fabulous. Uh, recountings of two, uh, two, two battles that were really significant for the 173rd, where they lost a lot of men. And um, he got all revved up, and he, so he re-enlisted. He didn't tell me he was going to re-enlist. Oh, my God. He re-enlisted for three years. Mm. And so he had to go back through basic uh because he had been out as long as he had been out and um i love that part of the book where he's writing me all the time about what the army is like it's a comparison story of what the army was and what the army is today mm. and um you know it's his point of view but it's telling and he ends up at fort campbell kentucky and he says let's get married and I said, well, I'm going to have a baby. I, I, you know, I want to have a baby. I waited a long time. I was 33. I met him when I was 32. Um, and he said, well, I don't want to have a baby. And I said, well, we don't have to have, you know, we don't have to have this relationship. Don't, don't worry. I'm going to have a baby. So that's it. And uh, eventually he came around. We we're going to have a baby when he, he got out of the army. Um, he wrote some beautiful letters in between that. Um, I picked out a great letter to read if you if you want uh, to hear. He was a brilliant writer. And um, we ended up having our baby and she was Agent Orange Poisoned. <gasps> so uh, she lived in the hospital for 10 and a half months. And then she died, um, and that was my that was my war. That was my battle. He yeah. lived in Connecticut most of the time. The NICU, um, the the NICU uh, for New New York uh, NYU Hospital was right on the NYU wasn't right on the pediatric floor. So we would be sitting, and and this this copter would come in and Michael would like go berserk. He would, he couldn't be there. Uh, so largely he stayed in Connecticut. Um, we had a summer house there and um, it was his house, uh, our house, but it, it was, his, it was where Sorry. he stayed. And um, and and when she died, um, you know, it was it was uh, it was it, ten and a half months is just enough time for a person to get over the abject unbelievableness of having a child so damaged. She was just neurologically not hooked up. Otherwise, she was a beautiful baby, beautiful baby girl. Uh, we named her Meryl. She was a uh, 
my my uh, my mom's maiden name was Merrill. His mom's maiden name was Donovan. So Merrill Donovan Kramer. Um, and then eventually life got hard. Let's call me back. I'm sorry. Life, Go ahead. That's Go okay. Ahead. Life got hard for us. Um, just trying to hold it together. It was, you know, my business was now failing a bit. I was having trouble. My clients were dying of AIDS. Um, Periellis, I did Periellis's logo and Tahari's logo. Tahari's alive, but one one year I didn't send out my Christmas cards for because I had this problem with my daughter in the hospital. And the next year, I think I crossed off 18 men and two women who had died of AIDS. Ooh. So it was it was a, a staggering new battle, a new battle, you know. One after the other. And, you know, I, I think a lot of us right now um, are feeling a similar onslaught of circumstances that are not nearly as, as close as you've described, but um, just living with the, the uh, insanity at the national political level, uh, the effects of the pandemic, and now what I call the post-pandemic, I've been losing a lot of friends of late, both in my age group, which is older, and as well as younger. And yeah. it, it's been pretty horrifying. And then at the local level, I mean, I, I'm too invested in civic matters, so I get very upset over um, civic issues. So what people call the crime problem here. I don't call it that. I call it the, the economic and educational dysfunction of our communities. And um, it's, it's all very hard to take if you um, have your eyes and ears open to what, what's going on around you. So your experiences were extremely direct and personal, um, but they reflected an era. I mean, again, that's what is so fascinating me about what you did. You took this per these personal experiences but widen the lens to describe a time and the experiences of people under very stressful circumstances. And I feel like we're going through that, as I say, right now, in a, and it's, it's maybe not as many direct personal hits, but uh, I, I, quite frankly, for me, the hits to the community and to the country, potentially to our very democracy is debilitating yeah. also. So I, I what, what were the lessons you took away from those years and how would you counsel people today who are impacted by all the kinds of hits that we're taking of a time that many people call, you know, it's a certain form of Armageddon. It's not the real deal that we've been, you know, people have predicted. It's not a religious um, situation, but uh, it's it's pretty devastating um, to feel like your whole country, the land is threatened, the um, vast swaths of our population. I just read a story this morning about the level of poverty in the state that was pretty horrifying. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you know, you can't help but be moved by those things, even if they're not directly. Hit. So how, how tell me how you grappled with all that, because that's a that's a lot to grapple with, and you're a pretty sane human being, in my experience today. So, how did you get um, through? And what's your recommendations to people who are going through their own 
either very personal or indirect um, challenges. Well, first of all, let me thank you for your acknowledgement of that generational thing I that you mentioned. I really do feel that um, we didn't look very closely at that generation, and I call it a generational memoir. I I want people to understand what happened that somehow we swept a lot under the rug. A lot was happening, man, you know, gay rights, women's rights, the ERA, all were happening at the same time. And I have on the other on the other note, I have a, a 24 year old daughter who's at Loyola and um, I um, let me kill this phone. And um, and um, and she's just finishing up at Loyola. She's she, you know, she endured COVID. There's a whole generation of college kids, maybe high school kids, who did something that we didn't do. You know, we did something that they didn't do, but they're going through their own turmoil. And my daughter couldn't study online. Um, she just couldn't. She took a semester off. She went back to school. She took a semester off. Um, she gave up ballet career because of an injury, but she, um, she is who I care about. It's it's her generation <clears throat> that I don't even know if, if they want to look at the world around them. I don't necessarily feel that they do, but I think that the book kind of becomes a bit of a, a history lesson for us all that we could learn from where we've been I'm, I'm reading a book right now, John Meacham's The Soul of America, I think it's called. And he takes these significant events in history, in American history, and he, and he talks about it. And America was a mess, just a mess in, at many points in our history. Um, and, and they pulled it out, you know, somebody said to me, just yesterday, that they're not concerned about recycling. I am. I'm really concerned about recycling. I'm concerned about, you know, the world getting hotter. But I think that these things are like unbelievable. I can't deal with this crap. It's bigger than me to these kids who are just trying to figure out where they're going next and what they're going to do. And they're very needed. The kids are really needed. Kids with, with intact brains, <laughs> um, brain stems, brain function. Uh, and I, I only hope that my book will clarify some of their past or their parents' past to understand that we go through things and we can survive. You know, my husband killed himself when the Persian Gulf War came out. He was protesting the war. 
um, he didn't survive. He didn't survive his daughter's birth. He really blamed himself. And he, um, and, and I chose another path. I needed to survive. I needed, I, I, I was the best mother I could be in those 10 and a half months because I knew we were not going to have another kid. But I was a full-fledged mom. And um, I think the thing we learn from it is that we have to embrace our situation. We have to get fully into it. We have to give of ourselves, learn what was happening there and move on, move forward. I thank you for, for doing what you've done. It, it took you a long time, if I'm not mistaken, to actually plod through this. So that all the more punishment for reliving it constantly as you're writing it. And oh my gosh. And the edit process, edit process was rereading it too. And I, I would get to the death of my baby or the, uh, the long the long stay in the hospital and I would get depressed. I would get bogged down, but went on, we went on. And, and you, and you um, then uh, were faced with the, the uh, project of, of a lifetime and getting it published. And I think that your thoughts on how you did that, because I think a lot of people want to write about their experiences for the value of others, of helping others. And, and don't know the game. So you've played the game, you know how it works a little. Share with us what you went through and, and, uh, and, and your advice for anybody else who wants to tell their story in a way that will be impactful. So that means getting it published and circulated, distributed and publicized and so forth. Well, I, I think, you know, tenacity is the key word. I, I, I think um, you need help. You need a really good editor. Um, you need more than one edit session. Um, and for me, I had an, a New York City agent I, uh, who loved the book, um, sent it out to 36 publish, publication houses, publishing houses, and got 18 glowing, almost all went, almost all were glowing responses, but they didn't have a Vietnam market. And for me, it wasn't about Vietnam. It was about the time of Vietnam. And surviving trauma. It's surviving trauma and um, finding love and, and, and what was going on in the world, AIDS and everything else. Um, and so she suggested that we publish in-house, that we do her, uh, her uh, self-publishing arm. And I said, well, if we're gonna do that, I'm gonna learn about self-publishing. I'm, I'm not just gonna go indie with you because of this. And, and I started to learn and that was already, I had spent eight years putting the book together. And then I spent another two years, honestly, of learning how to publish um, a couple more edits. And, um, 
you know, going to going going to the bookstore, going to Barnes and Noble, making friends with the manager, asking him what he thought of the title, asking him what he thought of this rough cover. Ask, That's you know, interesting. Eric right. was really helpful, um, and people were loving it. People who people who edited loved it people who were doing the layout, even though I was a graphic designer, I had a book fixer who fixed it and laid it out. Um, she said, she, she fell behind in her schedule. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, I just, I don't usually stop and read books, but I, I had to read your book. It's marvelous. And um, that, I took great energy for that and stick to itiveness. I I could have gone back to my um, agent and published through her when I got down on the process, but I didn't get down on the process, and I stuck to it. And I um, I uh, I then found the press that again the uh, store manager at Barnes and Noble suggested. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think I learned something at every turn, what I was supposed to do. I watched all the, all the um, videos on, tele, on the computer, on the internet about self-publishing and the problems that you have and who to go with and who not to go with and what to expect. And, you know, I, every, again, every little thing, it wasn't that there was, one way of doing it. Everyone had different ways, but there was one salient thing that I took from it and learned, kept in the back of my mind, and then um, and then I finally published. Um, in the end, Wait, what was that salient thing? Well, it was a, a number of salient things, like um, uh, what was one. Uh, Oh, you always publish on a Tuesday. <laughs> Authors publish on a Tuesday. Okay, okay. Um, you have to buy. Don't don't use the printer's ISBN numbers because then they own the ISBN and in part they own your publication. Buy your own ISBN numbers. Things like that. That who's teaching you that? You know. And you need to write a second um, little short how-to book on how to self-publish. Now, I, I'm serious. That is something that, unless someone's already done it, and it, it's hard to imagine that it hasn't been done, but yeah, I think that uh, it, it, it's something that um, many people would like to see. Yeah. I know a couple other people who have done self-publishing um younger and and you know probably a little bit more schooled in uh the digital world and how to get things done but um it 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 it, it seems like a formidable task i i have you know people keep saying gene you and bob need to write your book and i'm saying uh-huh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no time soon but um you know time can run out so you also have to kind of make a decision well, when you're going to uh, not just do but but write about doing which is what we do we, we're big yeah. doers and, then we... and talk about not um uh, there were a, a bunch of people i i redesigned woman's day magazine for ellen levine i thought maybe she could help me get it through she died you know everybody's like dying around me and 
one of the biggest problems about self-publishing is that everybody who says that they're going to help you is going to charge you $3,500, period. They're going to they're going to redo it. They're going to, you know, I explored other avenues that I, when I didn't know exactly what to do and was always, oh, well, it's going to cost you $3,500. Now, the other thing you need to mention, which is similar to your medical stuff, is that you can't talk to the printer. You have to do it all. Oh, you, just, you, just, you just brought home my whole morning of trying to talk to Wayfair about... No getting a, a, a assembly of a bed rescheduled. And all they kept saying was that we have no control over it. And I'm saying, wait, we paid for the service. You committed to the service. And now you're telling me you have no control over when and how it can happen. And I'm saying, I don't understand this world that we're in where people don't feel accountable and responsible for making something happen, particularly these big national companies that operate through the digital uh, connections, not human connections. Or if you want to talk to a human, you're finally talking to somebody in Sri Lanka who can barely speak English and who has parameters within which they work about that wide. Yeah. Yep. I'm sorry, I just had to let that little rant out because I spent yeah. my brain dealing with it. Yeah. It's uh, well, Martha. Um, I I just uh, I have nothing but um, appreciation and congratulations for you for doing this, and um, I know you're at just the beginning of another journey, and that is actually seeing the book bought now that it's been published. So now you're on the publicity end of things, and that's not easy either. And um, so you because you have to be so creative now because. You know, there's so much information flowing so quickly through all of the channels for communications and they're all um, demanding and, and you have to do, you know, I always say I really can't stand the fact that we have to both text and email and look at both to know what's going on. And uh, your situation now is going to be so much worse in trying to get it done. So um, tell folks, uh, uh, again, the title of your book and where they can find it and um, you know, um, uh, how you probably have some speaking engagements you'd like to mention, please do that. Okie dokie. Well, it's a tough one because um, 3,003 Days of Mike and Me and the Wars Between Us is uh, an indie book. As far as indie books are concerned, they are largely uh, sold in independent bookstores. Bookstores like Barnes and Noble do not carry them. It's a print-on-demand book, and print-on-demand books I only just learned this last week when I was in New York. Print-on-demand books um, uh, aren't warehoused, and so and so uh, Barnes and Noble can't call up the warehouse and get the order sent shipped over. So even this book signing and book uh, reading that I'm going to do at uh, Barnes and Noble on the 17th, I believe, the day before, the Saturday before Father's Day, um, I believe he's going to do a special order and or he's going to um, consign them from me. Uh, so I will have the book shipped in. And we'll have just so many books and, and that's how we'll get around the issue of- um, And which store is that where? That's Barnes and Noble and Metairie on Veterans Avenue. Um, 
And so you'll be there from when to when? From two to four on the day of the Saturday before Father's Day. Oh, uh, that sounds kind of perfect in a way. I think, um, you know, it, it might have been uh, great to get it even sooner, but it's, it's certainly uh, uh, an important start. Is that your first uh, speaking engagement or? At, uh... No, I had one at Humana. I have uh, another one at Humana in Baton Rouge um, in July. Um, I'm going to Nashville tomorrow. I leave for Nashville to a reunion of the 173rd Airborne. There's going to be 600 people there, and I'm going to sell my books. Um, and uh, if someone wants to, if they just put the numerical 3003 days of Mike and me, that's all you have to remember. It will come up on Barnes and Noble's website. It'll come up on Amazon. You can get the ebook on Amazon and the Kindle version. Um, and I'm going to do an audio book. Um, oh, that's going to be powerful. I'm sure. Yeah. I think I'm going to, I'm going to do it myself. People are encouraging me to do it, you know, so I think I have enough voice in there. Uh, we'll see. I'm going to test it. I would say so. Judging from our interview, you've, you've definitely captured me. Um, I'm, I've probably taken up most of the time of my show <laughs> for this week with you, but I, I think it was an important uh, story and uh, instructive you. to people who are going through the kind of things that we're all going through right now and, uh, and giving people a kind of a, a little bit of a, 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 I don't know, not a work plan, but uh, a sense of not being alone in, in the difficulties they're facing. Martha, you are um, dogged, so to speak, <laughs> just your last name. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's a, an important book. Let's do one more time. The author, I mean, the, um, well, yeah, your name, the name of the book, and the, uh, uh, the location of your speaking engagement on the day before Father's Day. Just, Okay. Up our conversation with that. So I'm Martha Voodis Donegan. Uh, I'm the author of 3003 Days of Mike and Me and the Wars Between Us. And my speaking engagement is at Barnes and Noble on Veterans Avenue in Metairie, Louisiana. And um, I'll be there from two to four the day before Father's Day, which I think is kind of a good day for us to so get too. out there. Uh, and this was a good day, and I appreciate very much um, you, you, you've touched me and, and giving me a little bit more uh, oomph for my challenges. I appreciate that very yeah, much. Yeah, good luck to you, uh, too. Thank you so much, and um, good luck with it. Thank you, Jean, very much. Take okay. care. Bye-bye. the head of an organization that deals with uh, addictive gambling, but she also deals with um, emergencies, especially um, mental health issues, including suicide. Um, so I really wanted to hear from her um, because it's so difficult for loved ones to understand what somebody else in the family might be going through. Yes. Um, even a friend. 
And um, so understanding the signs that somebody is in so much inner distress that they're not necessarily showing, but that is, is impacting their thinking about their lives is really important. So I wanted to have someone who has expertise in this share with us some of the indicators that you have to watch out for. And, and then when you see them, what do you do? Because I think mm-hmm. you know, people initially maybe think, don't think something is as serious as it may be. And, and then of course this horrible guilt in the end when someone commits suicide. Yes. So, uh, give me a little bit of, of your knowledge and experience on um, how to see the signs, how seriously to take them and, and, and how to respond and deal with it. I think that um, since I've joined LACG in 1999, we opened a helpline for the state of Louisiana in the year 2000. And it was a gambling helpline at that time, but what we incurred quickly as we did with residential care was many people were suicidal or um, close to or had thoughts of suicide. So we began training ourselves clinically and also our helpline specialists in that area. That's why I think in the year uh, 2020, 2021 or so, the Louisiana Department of Health um, asked ourselves, because of all the helpline work we have done for 20 some years, as well as via link, a New Orleans 211 provider and, and contact center to be um, helping them to form a 988 lifeline. And 988 Lifeline was the three-digit number that was opened in July of 2022 nationally. It has been in the works to have a three-digit number. It's not easy to obtain a three-digit number, as we know, for about 11 years. And so this summer, they allowed that line to be open nationally. And and LACG, who I work for, is one of two providers in Louisiana for that help. What LACD is, because they may not know. Um, Louisiana Association on Compulsive Gambling is a statewide (laughs) provider of services for gambling um, disorder, as well as for family and friends who need to understand or receive counseling as well. If you're a Louisiana resident, all of our services are free. So wherever you see a number in Louisiana on an advertisement or a posting where there is gambling, you'll see a helpline number. That helpline runs to our organization here, and we have 24-7 live in-person people talking to everyone 24-7. So um, it's so interesting that you start with one um, psychological issue, an addiction issue, basically, and quickly realize that those the people who are dealing with the addiction issue um, are also, uh, it, 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 there's a statistical, it sounds like, probability that they're also contemplating suicide. And so then you really have to broaden your, your scope of, of, of how you're uh, in, interacting with people. And so Correct. when you do that, um, what did you find that you needed to do uh, in co- communicating with people who were at risk? 
I think that it's important that not only did we learn clinically and as a service provider how to work with those who were struggling with suicidal thoughts or plans or even close to wanting to complete suicide, was that all of us needed to start uh, using those words appropriately, that it wasn't a, a commission of suicide. It wasn't committed suicide. It wasn't an illegal act per se. So we changed some years ago to calling it suicide completion because it's not committing. It sounds like a, an illegal action somebody's taking. People are depressed, people are hopeless, people are anxious and believing that there's only at one point in their life, possibly one way out of that depression, out of that anxiety or that life situation and that is with suicide. What we want to do as a society as a whole, as well as certainly we do this with anyone who contacts us with 988, is on the calls or the texts and chats with people, we will ask them, are they suicidal? In order to know where your friend or family is at, it's imperative that you use the words suicide. Because if we don't, because we're uncomfortable, many times they won't feel comfortable talking to us or family or friends. That's why 988 is very helpful. So we say the word suicide because saying the word suicide does not plant a seed in anyone to commit it, complete it, or think about it. It actually brings it to the surface. If they're thinking about that, if that is one of their plans at that point, then we need to know it as any family and friend would want to do, but to ask them directly, are you thinking or planning suicide? And, and we've learned years and years ago that if they're not, they will quickly answer you with, oh, I, I have no, no, I have no idea about that. I haven't even thought about that or felt that way. If they are, they will quickly tell you too they have been. And it's a much different response, but it's important that that friends and family, like we do with 988 Lifeline, is available with empathy and caring to not be scared of that because to talk it out, to look at a safety plan, to make a change for that person is what we're looking to do. So we want to know the truth about where they are with their plans and their decision-making process when they're depressed, anxious, or hopeless so that we can do something with that. Let's talk about the do something with it. Okay. Uh because I don't have a, a, a whole um, ton of time today, but sure. Uh, um, so, so explain to me, you know, what are some of the key uh, steps you can take to avert that thinking and that process? Number one is asking people if they are thinking or planning suicide. If they are, then we work towards a safety plan. We want to find out if the person has a means to hurt themselves. And so we want to get them distant from the means via uh, pills or, or guns or weapons or any kind of thing that they could, if they're driving their car and they state that they are suicidal, we want them to stop driving, pull off to the side of the road 
and and get with them or get them some help. And so what we want to do is get a safety plan. We want to uh, remove the only option is suicide and help them come up with some other options or a safety plan. Can I ask you, usually when you are encountering somebody who's thinking about suicide, um, has the, has the um, possibility of some kind of uh, care setting or uh, medication uh, usually been in place or not? Depending on the person and their status at the time, if they need medication, if they need counseling or hospitalization, we want to get them there. So either we want to talk to them about getting to that place of getting some care from someone outside of a family and a friend who understands mental health issues or addiction issues or combinations. The second thing is we, we want to make sure that if they're already prescribed medications, have they been taking those medications? Most of the time, people start and stop when they've struggled that we've we've talked to. And so many times, either people are under the influence of alcohol or other drugs when they when they think or start planning some suicidal actions, or they haven't been taking the prescriptions that their doctor or mental health care provider has asked them to do or not prescribed and using it as it should be. So we want to get that information from the person because it's very important that if you're going to be the person that makes the call, which we have a large percentage of the people that call 988 are friends, our mothers, our sons and daughters and dads, that we want to make sure we get as much information about that person as possible. If they've already had a mental health um, diagnosis, what is it? Are they on medications or are they not? And do they need to go somewhere immediately to be taken care of? There are times that some people need immediate help from EMS sometimes or transported to a hospital. And there's nothing but wonderful care for them because we can all help to get people back on track because life is difficult, especially after this pandemic. We know that it's been hugely um, impacting the world around us and our family and friends who have started thinking who maybe never thought of suicide before that maybe that is an option now. So we want to replace it with other safety plans, other um, avenues of help and hope for them. I think you, you've mentioned the individual who's having a problem and, and others who can help, but what about the, the immediate family who's confronted with, I, I have a friend who recently committed suicide and that's what kind of focused me in on this. And that person apparently was on top of the world ahead of an institution, um, very successful, beautiful wife and kids. And um, so it was stunning to everybody that he was apparently having some kind of what I was told to me as kind of psychotic episodes. I don't know what that means, but um, you know, when when the when the family is confronted with the wife is confronted with that, um, I think it's important, like you said, Jean, was that um, supposedly he was on top of the world. Obviously, he was not. 
And the the best thing that a wife or a husband, let's say, in that intimate setting can do is there are probably signs and symptoms you're seeing. A change of personal hygiene alone could be a sign of depression, not taking care of themselves, not taking their medicine, changes of irritability, sleeping too much, or not being able to sleep and having wake disturbances throughout the night is not healthy for any of us to have sleep disturbances. It can affect our mood, our thinking, our cognitive. And so we want to make sure that that anybody who lives with somebody else is, again, um, understanding to ask these direct questions about suicidal thoughts and suicidal plans. Because thinking of suicide is different than planning it. That plan is concerning to me because it means they're closer to maybe completing a plan. So we mm -hmm. want to interrupt that process as soon as possible. But I think that sometimes all of us, when we look back, I think part of the, the guilt I have felt with friends and family who have completed suicide is that I did see things. I just thought, well, they'll get through that. Or I didn't ask some questions I now wish I had asked at times when I was seeing some concerning behaviors. And that guilt promotes me and should with all of us to push through and say, I'll, I'll not do that ever again with anyone that I care about. You have that to ask the question. Ask Sounds the question. Like the fundamental question is, are, are you suicidal? If it is not there, if they have not thought about it, it will be uh, unbeknownst to them to even answer that with with anything but what? Oh, no, I would never do it. If they have, they will know that you care enough to ask directly into their depressed state or their lonely state. And to be direct about what it could be, which is suicide. I can't tell you. I think um, cold stop. I think that this is the key. And um, I, I hope that people who are listening um, will take this to heart and will uh, act on it and, and really um, do that intervention of that simple question. Um, Janet, this has been so valuable. And I hope um, I may come back to you and... Uh, please keep us informed on uh, trends and um, any uh, new developments that are happening that, um, you know, new techniques for, for dealing with people who have these problems. And uh, I look forward to continuing our conversation. Thank you. Thank so you, Jean. Thank you time. so much for contacting me. Anytime we would love to be on your show. And I have a 988 project manager that it would also love to um, share some information and statistics and things with you anytime we'll, you want we'll, to contact we'll follow us up. I, I feel like it's a conversation right now as you said post-pandemic people really are grappling with uncertainty i think is the key yes. word right now we have no idea we know the world is really going through the whole world is yes. going through some kind of um dynamic that is hard to put a finger on and we're all very uncertain about what the future is. I mean, you, you, the latest thing yesterday about how this new development AI is going to cause extinction of the human race. I mean, <laughs> what we, we just have to worry about 
getting through the day and now we have to worry about whether the human race is going to get through uh, time yes. itself. Thank you so, so much. I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. to everybody out there. Um, I hope this was taken to heart and I would uh, appreciate anybody calling in to me in the future and letting me know uh, their experiences. And you can call at um, 504-822-1950 would be a good number, 504-822-1950. All right, thank you so much, everybody. Cross Sound Conversations, Gene Nathan, talk to you next week. Thank you.